Welcome to the Shoreline Community Church Podcast, a community of love, acceptance, forgiveness, and belonging. For more information, be sure to check us out online at shorelinecc.com. We're in this series now called Love the City. I love the city that we're in. I love the, the place where God has placed us. And I love what he's doing in, in this community because as I talk to people, I sense the Holy Spirit stirring us and, and leading us and providing so many ways. And, and, you know, today we're highlighting Olive Crest. But if you're with us on week one, when Pastor Ravon was here, I hope you did not miss Pastor Ravon. He was here from Union Gospel Mission talking about homelessness, one of the great needs of our city. And if you missed that, boy, please go back. We have a, do you know we have, a, we have a podcast for all the sermons and the things that we talk about? You can go back and check that out, get the notes there, get his notes. But last week, we, we talked about, you know, why should we love the city? And we took this from Jeremiah 29.7 when the response from God to his people as they were in a city that was not for them was this. Jeremiah 29.7, God's response says that we are to seek the welfare of the city. And then God went on to say that in that, you will find your own welfare. And I brought to you one of the quotes from uh, one of my favorite authors, Tim Keller, as he speaks about this heart of God so beautifully. And I believe we have this quote that we're going to bring it up, but Tim Keller writes, he says, of all the things that God has made, human beings have pride of place in his heart because they were made in his image. And then he says, cities quite literally have more of the image of God per square inch than any other place on earth. Don't you love that? Cities quite literally have more of the image of God per square inch than any other place on earth. That's why we love this city, because it's filled with the image of God. And so this week now, we're talking about how we take on our responsibility. This is week three. We're talking about reaching the city and as we address the tensions. And Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, verses verses 13 through 16. And this is what Jesus said, our response. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. That's all y'all, everybody here. You are the salt of the earth, but... If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And then Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word through Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that as we bring forth this word today, Lord, that it would penetrate our hearts, that it wouldn't, we wouldn't be just hearers of the word, but Father, that it would transform us, it would ignite our hearts, it would awaken us to the things of God, to the opportunities that you provided to strengthen us so that we would become doers of the word. Your hands, your feet, in Jesus' name. And everyone said together, amen. Amen. So in this passage, part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, towards the beginning of it, just right after the Beatitudes, Jesus says this. He says, you are the salt and light. So in other words, Jesus is saying, this is your call. He goes through, blessed are they, blessed are they, shows how we're supposed to live. And now he says, your call is to be salt and light. 
And see, this is a common analogy that, that Jesus, he often used, he frequently used to explain how Christians, those who are following him, how we're to behave and how we're to interact. Now, for most of us, when we think about salt in our day and time, we, we think about, right, the salt and pepper that are just not, not, not the R&B group, but salt and pepper that's on our stage, uh, or hip-hop, forgive me, whatever the analogy is. I'm a jazz guy doing my best in a hip-hop world, okay? But we think about salt as being something that we, we just kind of we, we add to the food to, to bring out flavor. But when Jesus spoke about this, they were thinking about something so much more, something so much deeper because in the ancient world as well as today salt was highly valuable it was a necessity not just an accessory to their life because see salt it flavors food but when you look at salt salt is also it's a binder and it's and it's a stabilizer it's something that's used as a food preservative that we don't think about a lot today because we have refrigeration and so many other things that we can do to preserve food but salt is, is, a, is a preservative, and, and it's something that prevents bacteria from destroying the food. Scientists tell us that bacteria can't thrive in, a, in the presence of a high amount of salt. And doctors will also tell us that the human body also requires a small amount of sodium in order to conduct all the nerve impulses, uh, and, and, and it allows our muscles to contract and relax and to remain a proper balance of water and minerals. Salt is very important. And I mean, think about that. When you think about how salt is, is a stabilizer, how it keeps bacteria away from destroying food, and how it enables our bodies to properly perform and maintain this good balance, I mean, think about the spiritual implications that Jesus was talking about. See, Jesus, he gives us these analogies in order to speak to a deeper truth, to provide an illustration that has so much depth to it. And he's looking at all the Christians, those that are following him, and he's saying that you are meant to be salt. He didn't say you have salt. He said you are salt and light. In other words, we are meant to bring out, to highlight the flavor, and to reveal the, the goodness of God in our lives. And you know, as I think about this, how Christians are meant to be stabilizers in, in the chaos of the culture that we are in, the chaos of the culture that Christians were in over 2,000 years ago, it, it made me remember this classic prayer from St. Francis of, of Assisi, and we're going to bring this up. And many of you, maybe you've heard this before. Uh, I was blessed to be in a choir that we sung a choral version of that. Amazing, amazing piece of, of music. But this is uh, the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. It says, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. And you know what? I don't want to read this alone. Can we read this together? If your eyes can see that, let's say this together. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me bring love. Where there is offense, let me bring pardon. Where there is discord, let me bring union. Where there is error, let me bring truth. Where there is doubt, let me bring faith. Where there is despair, let me bring hope. Where there is darkness, let me bring your light. Where there is sadness, let me bring joy. O oh, Master, let me not seek as much to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that one receives. 
It is in self-forgetting that one finds. It is in pardoning that one is pardoned. It is in dying that one is raised to eternal life. Wow. What a powerful prayer to speak. What a powerful prayer to hear from all of you as you recite that because it is soaked in the Word of God. We could have biblical references the whole way through that prayer. St. Francis was literally praying the Word of God. And he's praying the call of every Christian to be the salt that God has enabled us to do through the power of the Spirit that is alive in us. But Jesus in this, though, he also revealed the challenge. And the the challenge in all of this, the challenge with salt, that though it is very shelf-stable, that salt can lose its saltiness. And I think this is especially true in the, diff, in the in the city. And so this this Jesus here exposes the challenge because the challenge is that we don't become like the city. See, we love the city. We've reached the city. We run to the city. We shout the name of Jesus to the city, and we go and we love. But the great challenge that Jesus is illustrating here is that if we're not careful, we can become like the city. This is what Jesus meant when he said, if salt has lost its taste, in other words, if it's lost its saltiness, he says, can it be restored? And he's like, no, it's it's no longer good for anything. Just throw it out so it can be trampled under people's feet. And this is the great danger, I think, for all of us today. The danger is losing our saltiness that the Lord has given us. It's losing, in other words, losing your taste. And this is... The Apostle Paul, he warned Timothy about this in 2 Timothy 3, 5, when he talked about those that they have the appearance of godliness, but that they deny its power. And Paul went on to say that this is so dangerous for people that they they have the appearance of godliness and they may be doing all the right stuff, but that they deny the power, they've lost their saltiness. Paul went on to say that as it relates to this, that we're to even avoid such people because that's how dangerous it can be. Now, strong words, but there are certain times throughout Scripture when, when Jesus and the apostles and the prophets talk about avoiding to, to guard ourselves, to be careful. Because, see, in the ancient world, salt was something that they depended on, that when they put it on something, they were counting on its value to preserve the food because, as survivalists know, it's not just enough to get the food. That's step one. But now you have to preserve it so that when you need it, when your family needs it, when your neighbors need it, it's preserved and it's ready. But imagine the horror to put salt on something that you thought was good, and then it was no good, right? It's like plugging in a refrigerator, putting it in, and thinking this, this refrigerator is going to work, and then you go on a long vacation, and you come back, and that fridge didn't work. And you got to throw it out. But back in Jesus' day, there were no Safeways, there were no Fred Meyers. It was a tragedy back then. See, bad salt, it threatened their survival. And I think it's important that we don't miss and that we don't minimize what Jesus is saying here. So when Jesus gives this warning about can salt lose its saltiness, did you know that salt can lose its saltiness? So how does salt lose its saltiness? Well, as I've studied this out, and again, I'm not a scientist. I just pretend to be one on Sunday morning sometimes. There are typically two ways that salt can lose its saltiness. And the first one is contamination. See, contamination will cause salt to lose its saltiness. And one of the common ways is through being watered down. 
See, we know that when, when water is introduced to salt, that the salt is dissolved and that it's no longer useful. And not only that, the water is ruined for drinking. So the salt is dissolved and the water is ruined where it's, it's undrinkable. And when you think about the spiritual analogy, analogies of this, it made me think about how spiritually this is in reference to outside influences in our life. That maybe at one time we were alive for the Lord. And you came to Shoreline Community Church and you heard how we love the city and how we want to engage with the city. And then you ran to the city to be salt and light. But there's a warning in this from Jesus and it's a warning that I've seen played out so many times because I've met so many people who have fallen away from God and when you sit down and you talk it through, one of the common reasons is through a friend. It's through somebody that they love, someone that they reached out to and someone that they tried to get together because, see, we were made to be together. And I've got to tell you, I'm an extrovert. There's times that, you know, we'll go through hard times and I'll go to Stephanie. I'll say, Stephanie, is God making me more of an introvert? And she's like, oh, no. Because <laughs> then I get around somebody and I'm like, I, it lights me up. I love having friends. I think one of the challenges for us that we, we live in a city that's one of the loneliest cities in the U.S. And sadly, that in the midst of our loneliness, we're willing to do whatever it takes. And we find ourselves crossing lines that we'll say we would never cross because we want to have friends. And in desperation, we allow the influence to come in and, and to compromise us. And as a result, instead of us being influence, being salt and light, we ourselves become watered down. And we begin to accept ideas that oppose God. And I hear, I hear this pretty frequently where people will say, you know, Pastor Duane, did God really say that? You know, does, does the Bible really say that? And even they come down, well, is the Bible really true? Because this seems to be hurtful. I mean, why would God do this? See, and we begin to do things that even make us susceptible to this. Without fail, when you talk to someone who's lost their saltiness, and I'll talk to them like, how did you get from being somebody who was so on fire for the Lord to someone that now you're questioning God and you're walking away from God and, and compromise is starting to fill your life? I mean, you can just list it out, and, and statisticians and researchers have found this, that one of the quickest ways to be watered down is if you ignore these that our lives are watered down and contaminated when we stop reading our Bible. We stop praying. You want to have your life watered down and lose your saltiness? Stop going to church. Is going to church tough? All good things are difficult. <laughs> All the good things in my life, there's times when it's easy, but there's times when it's difficult. But you stop reading your Bible every day. You stop praying every day. You stop gathering together as the body of Christ. You will be watered down. Stop sharing your faith. See, as we do this, as we stop sharing and talking about the Lord, as a result, there's a lack of integrity. There's a lack of being faithful to what God has called us to do. And it comes down to doing what I want to do instead of what God wants. I've talked to, to so many people, and I'll say, you know, where are you with the Lord? And they'll say, well, I'm following the Lord in my own way. But see, God doesn't follow us. We follow him. 
when we recognize how great he is, we come to the position where Job came to, where he's like, who am I to question you, the maker of all things? As a result, we stop trusting God, and we end up trusting our friends instead because we're so lonely. This is what spiritual death looks like. If a doctor was to diagnose it and come down, he'd come down to, you stop praying, you stop reading your Bible, you stop going to church, you stop sharing your faith, you started making these little compromises in your life. So that's one way salt can lose through contamination, but there's another way salt can lose its saltiness, and this is through separation, which is often caused by trauma. Incidentally, one of the things that UGM focuses on. See, salt is composed of two elements, sodium and chloride, but I found out that through electrolysis, that common salt can be broken down into its elements. And spiritually, this reminds me of trauma. This reminds me of, of, of the, the problem of pain and the unresolved trauma that has caused so many to reject. And maybe you've heard this before, or maybe you've even said this before. And there's times that I've even thought this. I'm like, God, if you really love me, why are you letting me go through pain? If you really love me, why did somebody steal my catalytic converter last night? Right? And as we learn from UGM, trauma and how we respond to it, this is at the root of homelessness, of separation in our city. See, when we go through pain, we begin to question everything in our life. Like, why is this happening, and why is nobody helping? By the way, somebody did stop last night and offer help. He was wearing a Kraken jersey, I'm just saying. Just a nice guy. Because we say, why is nobody helping? God, why are you not helping? And how can I stop this pain? And sometimes you'll even go, God, is anyone listening to me? How many of you have been there? Is anyone listening? Does anyone care? Well, fortunately, we have a great illustration in the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul, he lays it out very clearly, very plainly. He's someone who's gone through extreme pain, extreme persecution, and he answers the question of trauma in our lives in Romans 8 when he says, does it mean that God no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or persecuted or if we're hungry or if we're destitute or we're in danger or we're threatened with death? What did Paul say? No. Paul said, despite all of these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who, what? Loved us. Because, see, those of you, if you've walked through any amount of pain in your life and you've walked through it, hopefully you've learned that pain is the classroom. See, God, does, God doesn't sit back and just go, I'm, I'm just kind of poking you around here just to make you suffer. He's like, no, if you'll lean into me, if you'll trust me, if you'll follow me, I'm going to strengthen you, I'm going to deepen your walk, I'm going to prepare you for that next part. That's why as it relates to leadership, one of the big leadership lessons that leaders have to learn is that no matter what type of organization you want to grow, or no matter how you're wanting to lead, that your level of success in any organization is in direct correlation to how much pain you can endure. Because if you lead anything, you lead your family, you lead an organization, you lead a ministry, you will endure pain. I love marriage, but if you get married, are you going to endure some pain? The answer is yes. 
And it's often surprising to so many new couples. Stephanie, have you endured pain in our, in our marriage? Yes. <laughs> but pain is the classroom with the Lord. Though he may not bring it, he will use it to strengthen us. This is what James said. James says, look, when any troubles your way, he says, consider it time for great joy. Great joy. He said, for you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Pain is the classroom. But what makes us susceptible? What makes us jump out of the classroom? Isolation and separation. See, when a wolf is looking for easy prey, it looks to the wounded, it looks to the weak, it looks to the one that's on the outskirts. And when you look at how a wolf works, do you know that often they'll try to stir the pack up? They'll try to come in and kind of stir the pack up so that the pack is so focused on the wolves that it forgets that there are those young, weak, sick that need some attention. So they'll stir up the pack so that they can pick off the weak, those that are still growing. I mean, think about how that affects the body of Christ. That's why the psalmist talked about it. Jesus talked about it. The apostles said, how good and pleasant it is when we dwell together in unity. Unity. Not distracted by all that stuff. So that this can be a place when those that are hurting, those who feel marginalized, those that feel isolated, we can wrap our arms around them in Jesus' name and say, you are loved here. You are welcomed here. But we need to be careful because if we don't embrace the pain of the classroom, we'll end up being a dropout. We'll end up dropping out and walking away from the lessons that God would use to teach us, to instruct us. See, I love the city. I love Seattle. I love Shoreline. Every time I drive into Seattle, every time I drive up on Cap Hill, every time I cross over this bridge, my heart stirs and saying, Lord, would you use us? Would you flow in us to do this? But to do this, we need to be salt and light. To do this, we need to embrace the lessons that God would bring our way. To do this, we need to be unified. To do this, we need to be together no matter what. It's costly. So to do this, we need to pay that cost. So how do we avoid being contaminated? How, how do we deal with the trauma in our lives, preventing it from destroying us and destroying those that we love? Well, the answer, it's right in the middle of our mission statement. Jesus said it. The disciples said it. It was so strong in the New Testament that over 269 times this word is brought up, and the answer is discipleship. But I put a word in front of it that was put there by David Kenneman from Barna Research, and it's that word, resilient. It's that, res that level of resilient discipleship because this is what Jesus calls us to. See, Jesus didn't just say, go out and inform everybody or go out and get everybody to, to agree or go out and get everybody to sign a paper with a creed on it. These are all good. We need to inform. It's important that we align and that we're unified and that we agree with the things of God. And I love the creeds. But see, Jesus' call was not just to believe that he exists. 
In James 2, it says, you believe there's one God? Well, good for you. Even the demons believe that. And they tremble in terror. It's not just agreement. It's not just acknowledging that he exists. The creation testifies to it. It is obvious. But the call from Jesus was this call to discipleship. It's what he he taught his disciples to do. It's what he said, now you need to go and do. And in Jesus' day, there was no confusion over what discipleship meant. Discipleship was about that process of becoming like Jesus, completely surrendering yourself, complete denying yourself, and following after him, walking in step with Jesus. See, Christian is a word that came after discipleship. As people engaged with discipleship, they were called Christians because they looked like Jesus. They looked like him. They talked like him. They denied themselves like him. That's why Jesus described discipleship as being born again. He said, you're brand new. When you come to me, when you deny yourself, there's this new birth that takes place. And that's why in John 3, 3, Jesus said, unless one is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. That's why Paul said, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. That's what water baptism represents. And that as you go under the water, the old person, the old Duane is gone, thank God, and the new person comes in, in Jesus in her life. It's a brand new start. And his mercies are new every morning. I'm so thankful for new starts. There's times I've done stuff and I'm like, God, can I just start over? Know what God says to me? Yes. (laughs) Yes, you can. Now let's do some work. See, that's why people who are too in love with themselves, they're unable to do it. If you are in love with who you are, there's no room for Jesus. See, sometimes we're so in love with ourselves that we want to make a deal. We go, what is the least amount I can do? How much of myself can I hold on to, Jesus, and still follow you? Because I like this stuff and I like that stuff, so what if I just do this and I kind of go it through? That's how Frankenstein was made. How many, you, you know who Frankenstein, you know what's going on? That didn't end very well. Jesus doesn't call us to be Frankensteins. He calls us to deny ourselves, to become brand new. Are there passions in us that he's given us? Yes. Are there giftings inside of us that he's given us? Yes. But those only come to true maturity, true strength, as we deny it and we trust him. That's why Jesus warned, if you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. In other words, this is a matter of life and death for your soul. So how does all this, how does it relate to loving the city? How does this come in? How does this this whole idea of what Paul said, I die to myself daily? Well, it, it, it relates to the city because if we've not surrendered ourselves to this type of discipleship, this true discipleship, we're just going to be another stat. I mean, I remember when I, I joined this, this, this uh, eclectic prayer group up on, up on Cap Hill about almost 10 years ago now, where we would join together, people from so many different backgrounds coming together, and we would just go in. I remember someone looking at me and saying, you won't be here in two years. That was my welcome statement. We don't use that welcome statement here. But it was from the reality of as you minister in the city, it is a hard hard place. 
the cost and the attack are very real. I know so many people that they used to tell people about Jesus. They used to be passionate about reaching the city, and they're just gone for one reason or another. And there's no judgment in that. There's just a reality. It is difficult. So that brings us back to this word resilient, resilient discipleship. And, and it, it comes from author and researcher that I mentioned earlier, David Kenneman, that he's found that, that the discipleship, that the distinguishing feature between those who make it spiritually and those who do not is this act of resilient discipleship. And it comes from a book that he wrote, a wonderful book. I've read through it multiple times because it's so rich and so deep, his book called Faith for Exiles. And in it, he's, he focuses on an age group that has the biggest drop-off spiritually. And this is that age group from 18 to 29. Maybe you've heard that before. He's focusing on church kids. Kids that they were raised in church their whole life. They came with mom or they came with dad or they came with somebody. But they had this profession of faith. And then in that 18 to 29, they just fell off. And as he went in and he researched this age group, he found that among those who grew up going to church and the vast majority of them who were falling away, he, he laid them out in, in several categories. And the first category was, was a group that he called prodigals. Prodigals make up 22% of, of the group. These are those they grew up in church and they may even call themselves Christians as a teen, but he's found that 22% of those who were Christians as a teenager fell away, left Christ. They're ex-Christians, no longer professing a faith. Of this 18 to 29 group nationally, his research found that 30% are nomads. Now, nomads are those that they say they're a Christian, but there's no connection to church or evidence of biblical Christianity in their life. And for time's sake, I won't dive deep into it. But suffice to say, 22% 22% prodigals, they're just gone. 30%, they're like, I believe it's true, but I'm not going to follow it. That's 52% already. And then his research, he found that 38% are what they describe as habitual churchgoers. So these are people that they, they may say they're Christians, and they may even attend church as much as once a month. but that they don't have the core beliefs. When they followed up and said, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you walk in this way? Key biblical foundations that their behaviors did not line up. Now, we're not talking about perfection. We all blow it. But as followers of Christ, we confess, we come back, we walk in this way, and we, we commit to following the Lord. If you've been doing math, that's 90%. The drop-off rate of 18 to 29, of those who've grown up in church, is 90%. Doesn't that just break your heart? And I know it breaks a lot of your hearts because you've witnessed that, you've seen that. You have people that you've cared about who've experienced that. But while there are those who do not make it, those who fall away, there's a group that's making it. There's a group that's making it, and this, this group is known as Resilient Disciples, and this is where I just want to spend our final moments just kind of leaning into them. I'm going to go through very, this very quickly, but I encourage you to study this out. See, Resilient Disciples is a title that's given to this group of 18 to 29-year-olds of those who they have beaten the odds of falling away. How many of you want to see that? How many of you want to see that number grow? 
And here's what the researchers found, that, that those who have made it, those who have come through, that we're, we're not going to give up on following Jesus, that there's this deep resiliency that cannot be shaken. Here's some of the key characteristics that they found, that resilient disciples, they are regularly involved in a worshiping community known as the church. Do you know why we're here today? Because Jesus told us, the Apostle Paul told us, the writer of Hebrews told us, never neglect coming together because we need to be reminded. We need to be serving one another. We need to be loving one another. See, this is not a place where I just come to get, though. I get a lot of things here from all of you. And you even appreciated all of our pastoral staff last week. Thank you for doing that. And if you missed Steve Skeving's song, I've got it up for sale on Spotify. You can go there. (laughs) Kidding, Steve. But thank you. See, we're not just here to receive, we're here to pour out. We're here to see what it says in Proverbs that the person who waters is water themselves, that as you give your strength and as you let go of your life, you gain it. This is a place where we serve one another, love one another, no matter what. And this was the number one thing on Resilient Disciples. They did this. Number, number two, it says they've made a personal commitment to Jesus who they believe was crucified and was raised to con- conquer sin and death. Number three, they strongly affirm that the Bible is the inspired word of God which contains truth about the world uh, that they live in. Number four, it says that they have developed muscles of cultural discernment. These resilient disciples, they look at the culture and they're not going to be fooled about it. Or if they have questions, they come back to the saints who have, we've been through this before, right? You talk to the saints who've been here for decades, you're like, oh, we've seen this stuff before and we trust Jesus. Just trust it out. Just last it out. I'll be here with you. I'll, I'll bring you food. I'll, I'll do what, whatever. That's the power of the body of Christ. In order to develop muscles of cultural discernment, that's not led by Facebook or Newsbook or anything that's out there, but we live and breathe the Word of God. That speaks to us. Resilient disciples, number five, it says that when isolation and mistrust are the norms, they forge meaningful intergenerational relationships. Look at that. When isolation and mistrust are the norms, they forge... They take the initiative. They step forward to forge meaningful intergenerational relationships. What that word intergenerational means is that it's with people that are not just their age. It's multiple age groups. With people who've been there, they've done that, and they love them. That means that they're in a culture where they're able to bring them in, to listen, to walk alongside them. And then number six Resilient disciples, they curb entitlement and self-centered tendencies by engaging in countercultural mission. In other words, they die to themselves. They echo the words of Paul when Paul says, I die daily because this flesh keeps trying to rise up in me. If you follow the flesh, you will follow the flesh to death. But if you follow Jesus and deny yourself, you will gain it. You will have new life. Resilient discipleships. And I got to tell you, as I was reading, pray for me, I can get this out because as I was reading this, I began to think about resilient disciples that we have right here. 
names kept coming to my mind, and I'm not going to mention them because I don't want to put them on a pedestal, and they wouldn't like that because they're resilient disciples. We have a young adult group that is modeling that, that is walking that out. They're resilient in their faith, and they're leading and they're inviting others. We have resilient disciples that have now, they've come through that age. And we have some that are coming in that though they may be 50, that they're a new resilient 18-year-old today in their faith. And they're walking it out and they're saying, I am not going to deny Christ. I'm not going to deny the body of Christ that he died for. And I'm not going to be fooled by the world around me. And I'm going to let the word of God be in my heart to lead me, to guide me, to be a light unto my path. We have them right here. Can you just thank the Lord for that? In a generation that is falling off, that is running away, that is being fooled, we have young adults that are here like that. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And this all ties in to resilient discipleship as the worship team comes today. See, it ties into loving the city because for all of us, resilient discipleship is essential in loving the city. Before we lay out one program, before we lay out one methodology, before we put down one dollar for any of this, we need to first of all look at ourselves and say, God, what are you doing in me? Am I resilient? Am I trusting your word? Am I not neglecting to gather together even though it can be a little weird sometimes? And Dwayne's talking about Frankenstein. Who in the world is Frankenstein? It's that commitment to say, where you lead me, Lord, I will follow. Where you've placed me, God, I will serve. I don't want to lose my soul. I live for you. And there's a cost to that. There's a cost to that. See, if we are not resilient, we won't make it. And I got to tell you, I get so excited about what the Lord is doing here at SCC. And I know... Every pastor says that, and I've said that my whole life, but it's true. There are seeds of things that are taking place in us and amongst us. Even the delay of the coffee house and the permitting and the things they asked for, in the beginning I was like, oh, God. But I hear the Lord saying, trust me in that. There's a timing in this. There's a process in this. There's a relationship you're building in this. So I've gone, Lord, however long it takes, I'm trusting you. Some of the things we've dreamed about, you know that we're starting to see some seeds starting to pop up in the ground. Some things I've shared with you. We prayed for an international packed church to be a part of us, parent-affiliated church, and the Lord brought us Dr. Carl Martin and her husband Randy to be here that are here today. I'm seeing people step up in ministry. I'm seeing new people come and give their life to Christ and say, I'm planting my feet here. I'm seeing people engage. I'm seeing people get together. We issued this four-week prayer challenge where you find a prayer partner. I'm hearing stories of people that they're praying together and the Lord is speaking and moving in their midst. I'm hearing people that they're engaging in giving for the first time. They're like, this is, this is sacrificial. I'm like, yeah, the whole walk is sacrificial. But they're trusting the Lord and they're engaging in that. I'm seeing people that recognize that we will be tested, we will be tried in every way, but they're starting to go, perhaps God is getting me ready. Perhaps God is preparing me. Because see, just like as we quote Jeremiah from back in the exile of the Jewish people to Babylon and how they were tested and how they were going in, 
It made me think about the three Hebrew young men, young men. They were told if they didn't bow, they're going to be thrown in the fiery furnace that was so hot, even the guards who brought them there were destroyed. That they went to the fiery furnace going, I believe that God can save me, but even if he doesn't, I'm going to trust God, not you. I'm going to walk with God, not you. And then a fourth man shows up and, to save them, to restore them. And a king's life was changed. I think sometimes the Lord looks at me and says, are you willing to go in the fire? How much are you willing to trust me with? Because it's all. It's everything. It's everything. It's everything. Would you stand with me this morning? And I invite you just to close your eyes and shut everything out and just speak to the Lord. And if that's your prayer, just speaking to the Lord, Lord, I give you everything today. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. We need to hear from your Holy Spirit today, oh God. If we're going through test and trial, Lord, help us to see. Help us to trust and to know that you are with us, that you are with me, that you've never abandoned anybody. We've never been alone. Nothing can separate us from your love. So, Lord, you're calling us to take those next steps. If we're to be a church that is to be effective in loving the city, Lord, it starts with our personal commitment of loving you, trusting you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. In Jesus' name. You know, there's, there's questions that are up. Just asking yourself, you know, where am I today? Because that goes back to the original question from God when God walked into, into the Garden of Eden after the first sin. God walked in and he said, he said, Adam, where are you? This is your question today. Are you a prodigal? You're not following the Lord? Are you a nomad? You believe he exists, but that's as far as it's gotten for you. There's no surrender. Or maybe you're a habitual churchgoer. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're here. But it's that last one, that resilient discipleship that God's calling us to. That begins with a step. Resilient discipleship in my life looked, looked like, like this growing up. I mean, this, these, these are stairs, but where I grew up, stairs were called altars. <laughs> An altar is a place where you lay something down and you sacrifice it. And from the time that I could just kind of stagger to walk, my parents led me here. I said, Dwayne, you've got to lay down your stuff. You've got to sacrifice yourself. You've got to lay it all down. And there's something powerful when this physical and the spiritual meet up and we take those steps so today wherever you are if you need to give your life to Jesus step out come pray with somebody take that step that that physical step of walking with somebody if you're going you know what God is testing me in some things today and and it's hard and it's deep and I, I want to be in that resiliency but I just want to come forward and lay it down and say God I give you my pain I give you my stuff Take a step out. Take one step. And, and just as a sign of surrender, saying, God, I just give it to you today. Or if there's something that you, you're asking the Lord for, take a step. Let me encourage you. Take a step today. As I've taken those physical steps, as I've verbally prayed to the Lord, I found such power in that. 
So as the team sings today, let me encourage you, whatever you need, step out. Bring someone with you, pray with them. Go to these prayer people, pray with them. Go to communion and say, God, Jesus, you gave your life for me. Now I'm giving my life to you as I remember. Do your work in me as I give thanks to you. But take some step today and find that new life. Lord, we just want to be where you are. Lord, walking in your ways, trusting you. Lord, as we head into the classroom of pain, difficulty, decision points, Father, I pray that we would lean into your word, I pray in Jesus' name. God, that we would be resilient, not fooled, not taught by the culture, but Lord, taught by your word, and that we would be your salt and your light, I pray. How many that's your desire? to be that resilient disciples, to be that salt and light that Jesus has called us to be. Amen. If that's you, just lift your hand today. Just commit it to the Lord. Father, we commit it to you. Lord, we say, here we are. Lord, use us. Speak to us. Strengthen us, oh God. Lord, you've placed us here for such a time as this. And Lord, we will not worry. We will not be overcome by fear. But Father, we will trust you. We will take steps towards you, trusting you in every part of our life, in our family. Lord, being willing to have those uncomfortable, difficult conversations. So Lord, use us, I pray. And I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, even now, God, that you would speak to us about a situation. You would speak to us about a circumstance, each of us, that you're calling us to be in. Lord, open our eyes to next steps you're calling us to make. And Lord, empower us by the Holy Spirit, that thing that we need to lay down on your altar, I pray in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, let your will be done, your kingdom come, I pray, in your name, O oh God, in your name, and everyone said, amen, 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 thank you for being with us today, and let me encourage you, if the Lord has spoken to you today, he's speaking, let me encourage you. Write it down, tell somebody about it, take some step. Maybe coming down here with me was too weird for you today. Take some step. Speak to somebody. Write it out. Take those next steps of faith. Enact what the Lord is doing in your life. Maybe it's a situation that you're praying for help in. Maybe it's a circumstance that you've lost hope in. You're saying, God, I'm going to keep trusting you however long it takes. Trust the Lord. Seek him with all your heart, and you will find him. Amen? Thank you for being here with us today. This is our benediction. Let's say this together as we go live for Jesus. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Now, wherever you go, go and live for Jesus. I love you guys so much. God bless. God bless.